Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sackness. And Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm really, really good. I, I think I live in a kind of heaven here. Uh, it's really hit home, so to speak. There are bunny rabbits running around, quail, uh, road runners, morning doves, mockingbirds. Every so often, uh, uh, eagle or raven flies over. Southwest Airlines, one by one by one, pilots, you know, dreaming of affairs in Salt Lake City or Denver, and UFOs when the sun goes down. And I saw uh, just a beautiful, beautiful lizard uh, right out where. In in between the paint spots on my back uh, paved porch area downstairs where uh, I was doing a lot of art and it was just beautifully mosaicing itself into that piece. So I'm really good and I, I've done some uh, some good writing and uh, art making today. So I'm, I'm really kind of up and high. How are you? Similarly good. I've been waking up at 4 a.m. every morning to work on my writing. It's my sacred time, my alone time. And I'm finding that the pattern is the same. Every time I wake up, I make myself a cup of coffee. I sit for about 30 minutes. It's not a formal meditation at all. It's just sitting and thinking. Sounds good to me. And, uh, and then I open up the Word document. Usually takes about another 30 minutes of dicking around on the keyboard before the real writing begins. And then I write from 45 minutes to an hour. And I usually complete a full chapter of the novel that I'm working on. Uh, and then I take the remaining hour and do the dishes and take a shower and just be by myself for that period of time. But I really value it. It's changing my whole life. It's changing my days, changing my attitude. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm very, very happy with my schedule, how I have it right now. And I feel very cagey and protective of that, that beginning three hours of the day. My son woke up at 545 a few days ago, and I firmly but politely got him back into bed immediately because I said, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. No, no, your time. You can wake up at seven with your mother, and then we can play and start our day and all that good stuff. But this is daddy's time, so you got to leave daddy to daddy time. I love the idea that you're cagey and protective. Cagey is a great word. My father used to love that word. I do too. I think it's better than wily. I love cagey, mm -hmm. and I think the idea of you know. This is what stumps a lot of people about meditation. They get hung up on the formal aspect of it. And I don't think that's what's important. I mean, look at animals. They don't have a formal you know, way of doing it, but they certainly have a very effective meditation practice. And I think whatever works you know, for you, and I think being able to explore that, but once you begin to find it, to, to be protective of it. That's enough formalness to anything, I think. And if more people adopted that, I think that would really help. It would solve a lot of waking problems and sleeping problems. You know, you look at humans relative to other animals, and I mean, we don't wake up well, and we don't go to sleep well. I mean, what does that set? We're kind of, those are two really important animal survival 
abilities and and we're obviously having civilization-wide issues with them so i really really support that and for people who who want to pursue meditative practice listen to what you know how david developed that very organically not making a big production of the technique or you know really it's about time and and intent but where people uh where i've experienced where formal meditation works is really when you're you involve some sort of group where mm-hmm. i lived in south africa was a, a a communal sort of house run by a buddhist woman and uh she who trained in Nepal and and she did meditate very formally but but the formal aspect for her grew out of of the group and the tradition and really was secondary to to that very basic personal intent privacy uh inverted privacy is a is a good way to, I think to think of it so I hope people follow through on that because I do the same and I um my practice is obviously different but it 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 sounds the same as you described it and i don't know what would happen to uh my psyche if i didn't do that you know i had i had to do something cuz i was at my wits end with the feeling of waking up at 7 with the kid and then immediately it's diaper change putting on clothes for the day yeah. making breakfast, getting ready. And then that's go, 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 go until his nap time. And I was finding myself to be pretty burnt out by his, he goes to, he goes down for a nap between 1231. And I couldn't bring myself to do much except read, read books in bed, which is what I, I've moved that practice to before right. I go to bed. Right. I moved that right. Practice I, I was, I was, anticipating yeah, yeah. that yeah, yeah 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 rios rios bought me a book light you know that attaches yeah to the book. yeah and, I, That's and it's, nice. got, it's cool That's it's got a it, yeah it is it's it's got a cool uh it's got the kind of white fluorescent setting but it's also got a very warm setting so yeah. i fall asleep reading novels uh usually get about 20 25 pages in before i'm toast but you know it adds up over time well, you're you're looking at the beginning and the ends of your day, which is really the cycle of consciousness uh, for a 24-hour period. And I think that's really what we mean when we go back to, to our last episode about structure. You know, it starts on that level, structuring time with via psychology and making those choices to structure that. And I think that the I love the way you describe the alternative if you didn't, because you instantly were into this machine process of changing diapers. Blah, 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 blah. And everybody's like that. You know, that's yeah. that can happen to us all so easily. And one of the things that I've become a lot more conscious of uh, with people kind of in my general sphere is how willing people are to give over to that sometimes and not resist against that to not be cagey and protective but and then that that's those needs take very strange form because they're not handled uh individually intimately both psychically and metabolically they start to become social things that then inform families and friends and networks and workplaces and you think oh jesus you know come on 
don't wake up in the machine. That's cuckoo Absolutely. stuff, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, when I say that I'm protective of the time, two weeks ago, there was an agitator scheduled and the guest said that they wouldn't be able to start until nine o'clock. <laughs> and I had to say, I'm, I'm sorry, we are going to have to reschedule because if we start at nine and we end at 11 or 1130, you know, you and I start at 830, which is perfect. We usually do about two hours. So it'll be 1030. I'll brush my teeth, read my book, fall asleep at 11. I know, I know that five hours doesn't seem like a lot of sleep, but if, if I get to sensing that it's becoming a problem, I'll adjust. I'll figure out a way to, to adjust. It's not bothering me at the moment. I've had some friends who I've told the schedule to express concern about the only getting five hours of sleep aspect. And I won't lie to you and pretend that I'm a super, one of those crazy people who can have two or three hours of sleep and be totally fine. That's not me. But during this period of adjustment, uh, the way that I see it is that if I do get tired, that time is going to be taken from the evening, not the morning. So I'm not pushing the four o'clock wake up time to 5.30 or six. I'm pushing the bedtime back potentially to nine or 9.30 if I need to. You see what I mean? It's just that I kind of, how, how, much, how much sleep do you get per night? Uh, okay. Well, since I've gotten back, uh, well, first of all, I really can't sleep in terms of the depth of sleep. I, I have, uh, when I got back, I described to a friend that I, I slept like broken China wrapped in a pillowcase. I mean, I just completely was just, I know that feeling, you know, I get that I mean, feeling when I travel, doesn't matter where I'm traveling to. It's a, it's a simultaneously heavy, but delicate feeling it's, yeah 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 i know that feeling very well but the, recently i've had some real saturation sleeps that have found me waking up feeling really uh like today i woke up uh it was 5 40 and uh i think i'd gone to sleep around um before 11 so that that seems to me to be a good fit. But I what really is important to me is that I either just am ready for both sleeping and waking, or I use the kind of, of practices that we've been talking about as just even just for a few minutes, you know, just to uh to get set for the experience. But the absolute worst thing, and everyone knows this, but it's easy to uh, to violate, just do not be web surfing before you go to bed, particularly not with the news. I think that's okay to, to, to maybe start a working day. Well, it, you know, once you're meditatively alert and awake and really present, uh, and for me that that I'm I'm swimming in the morning, really, you know. Um, so I have to walk to the pool, which is beautiful, beautiful. And then I swim, I come back, rowing machine and weird Arab music for 15 to 30 minutes, breakfast. Then I'm starting to sort of feel like I could maybe, maybe check out the news. But uh, then I think, no, I'd really rather do something, you know, yeah. 
Yeah. Important. You'd, di- you'd rather do that than dive into the maelstrom of, of the news. I check the news such that I do along with my email and my, my messages um, at about 1030 because without getting into too much detail, that's bathroom time usually. And I check it in the bathroom. What? Oh, I check, I check that stuff in the bathroom. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Bathroom. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I realized I forgot to give you your words to choose from. So I'm, I'm, oh. I'm texting you them. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. We got excited and dived right. Yeah, we did. I'm sorry. That was me. That was That's me. That's all right. Um, okay. Uh, you'll see. These are odd. This is. Uh, okay. There you go. Okay. So I've just. Normally, I immediately before we go live, I. Uh, Give David five words to uh, choose two to integrate subtly, agily into. Agily. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Further into your band aphorism and my yeah. imaginative challenge. You okay. have You have written something cool. I have. Yeah. Well, I think. I'll tell you why I think it's cool. It's something that you and I have been talking about from the very, very start of the show. It underlies, underscores, scaffolds a lot of what we uh, investigate and are curious about. Uh, but I think it's really just kind of building on the good groove that I've I've been in of over the last few months, really, that just... I'd like to think this is pretty understandable. So maybe we could just, I don't know, see. But here it goes. Consider an individual as an organic artifact of their culture. Living, mobile, interactive, but nonetheless an artifact or more accurately an emblem. An immediate question occurs. How representative of and faithful to, how congruent, embodied, infused, and harmonically resonant with that culture are they? This could be a simple, powerful way to evaluate a people. It gives us a harsh, illuminating perspective on the immense price the so-called rise to civilization exacts because it's unavoidable that with what appears to be increasing surface area and topographic detail of culture, individuals will less and less accurately and fully emblematize their cultures. They start to move like strangers within it, less and less sure what it is. Inevitably, their ratios of confidence to confusion corrode. All the meat-eating, fighting, fucking, and consuming in the world won't help. They become ghostly, specters of spectators, ghosts in machines working ghostly machines in order not to work at all. 
But this can't just go on and on without dire consequence. And this is what I mean by the emblematic chasm, a kind of singularity, uncanny valley, tipping point in anthropology and psychological terms. Picture someone getting out of a pool and lying down on pavement in the sun. The swimmer is then called away by friends, but the wet of the body lingers a bit on the pavement. Under the summer sun, the darknesses slowly recede or seem to implode and then suddenly disappear. Think of the wet silhouette as a visualization of a person's emblematic congruence with their culture. As portions fade, the whole figure alters. Woof! Then the whole moist shape is gone. I believe this is what's happening inside many people today, and it's epidemically spreading through societies around the world at the speed of technology. Humans may have an evolutionary calling to serve as emblems of their cultures. What else to be? As the creeping awareness of inadequacy as emblems gains momentum, the individual suffers not merely some sort of self-esteem anxiety, however extreme, but rather a wilderness vacuum navigational crisis. Boundaries blur, membranes collapse, mirrors become camouflaged. Nothing is but what is not. I suggest this is the lens to bring into focus the escalating mental health problems of our time from the mundane to the bizarre. It may also offer clarity on more contentious matters of spirit. What could be more loudly whispered today than pervasive spiritual alarm? That's great. What does emblematic congruence look like to you? Uh, it's it's a one-to-one sort of sigil relationship, which would be uh, increasingly less possible the size as as the size of populations grow. I think it goes back to an original kind of hunter-gatherer uh, shaped and sized tribe of people. So it ties in with basic evolutionary psychological theory that we kind of never outgrew that mindset. And it, I mean, it it links into um, research into how many people can an individual really know in their lifetimes and really connect with, you know, our networks were only so big, even the most social people. And, you know, super social celebrity type people start being industries and having all sorts of assistance and an entourage of stuff. That's not what we're talking about. That That's not fair. We need to look at the individual psychological level. So I think what it would mean is that if you uh, take a, a survivor show type of moment where you're having to reinvent uh, civilization as you knew it before some sort of, of calamity or, or before being isolated. How well could you do that? How, 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 much, how much cultural cargo do you carry if you want to have a possessive 
sense of it. Mm, mm, mm. So um, how much, how much of your culture do you carry inside of you? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. If, I've never if, thought about it that way. Yeah. I mean, think of it. If, if, if alien anthropologists encountered you and, and they could do something, uh, you know, pretty forensic on multiple levels without damaging you, they could, how much of, your culture however you define that would they be able to determine Mm -hmm. that's a very interesting way to think about i'm glad that you put it that way that's how i'm going to think about it from now because that's a question i'm not sure i'm not sure how much i i mean that might be some time for some self-reflection actually. Well, think of it another way. I mean, if if going back to the remote indigenous um, populations, however small that we've indexed in the past and talked about, uh, I mean, one of the the defining elements of their notion of child rearing and education is to instill this sense, to to make an adult that is emblematic of the culture. That's what they're doing. They're they're crafting cultural living cultural artifacts. Ooh, that really interesting. are faithful to the culture. Yeah, I don't think that's story our goal. and ritual. Yeah, through story, yep. ritual, routine, family, the craft, everything. Craft, you know, geographic relationality thing, things like that. You would want a person who is a perfect, uh, in perfect emblematic congruence with their culture to know where the best fishing hole is and also to know the story of say Noah's Ark or something of that matter, be able to recite these stories from memory, be able to know people that are close to him and know things about them, not just their utilitarian value, but who they maybe are as people. That's interesting. That is very, I've never thought of a, of the goal of, raising a person as to be a sort of biological avatar of their surroundings. That's beautifully put. I think that's exactly, uh, it it is strange thinking and it may not seem like a a, a good goal to some people, which I then question that thinking, but, but it is, that's exactly the point that I'm making. And I think if that were in any sense, biologically and psychologically, wired into humans you could see that leading to a greater and greater sense of anxiety and confusion which i think we are seeing uh that's part of my explanation for it It also coincides with a sense of yes we're manufacturing knowledge in the sense of greater and greater amounts of data and information but we're also manufacturing ignorance and anyone involved in education at any level knows that that is what's happening. Specialization, you know, we get more and more of that. And so these little tiny bubbles that are sealed off. So people, and then we have cultural amnesia where everything is determined by marketing consumerist trends. And you've got whole groups of, of people completely bubbled or siloed away from each other no sense of, of larger cultural knowledge, no agreement, no cons- right. consensus. Right. I am brought back again to one of our heroes of the show, which is David Lynch. 
And this would be my rebuttal to people who wouldn't like that idea of a person as being uh, an emblematic avatar of the culture that they're raised in because the objection might go that might stifle individuality, creativity, what have you. Can you think of a person who more embodies small town Montana than David Lynch from the way that he talks to the way that he does his hair to his interest in the weather and flying and cabinetry and things like that. And then you look at the art that he makes and you think, holy shit, like it feels like it's dissonant, but I would argue that through his transcendental meditation practice, sure. But what if there's something to his ability to give himself over to that earth spirit, that cultural spirit, it gives him that insight, that dark insight that he can turn into art. Exactly. And I think because he's working on the cultural level, the reservation that people will have, and a lot of people will have it today, about some sort of avatar of culture, they'll say, well, who's who determines, you know, what, what that is, you know? And it then becomes a fight over who has the microphone, who has the conch, you know, in the Lord of the right. Flies sort of terms. Yeah. And that's the social way of looking at the, the idea of culture. That's a degenerate subform of culture, which is very, very, very temperamental and uh, always changing. And that can't be the nature of culture. Social has got to at least, at minimum, be more fragile, uh, more uh, provisional, and not on the same level as culture, as we've been talking about. And I think that's the confusion. Because as societies grow, as, as groups of people grow, clearly culture does expand. And it becomes more complex, becomes more intricate. Maybe then the reflection of that, or what we're calling the emblematic congruence, maybe we need to change that as that, that form. But the responsibility, the calling to that doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Calling to that does not go away. We still measure ourselves implicitly against that. So we need to have some psychic defense to bolster that in in and we i think there are many ways meditative practices certain nutrition thing uh possibly uh travel adventure work hallucination you know hallucinations dreaming all sorts of things can help with that but i think that we have and social media is the prime example of a massive self-esteem crisis on the level of mental breakdown and spiritual collapse. I don't think that's overstating the problem right now. No, no, I don't think there is either. And listening to you talk, I can't help but think that maybe the solution is to decomplexify culture a bit. Maybe it is to get it to be a bit smaller for there to be pockets of cultures that you can then get more into. Because I'm thinking about the, and we'll get into the show here soon, but this is so interesting. And you, and you know how we do. We, we follow the muse on this show. But I'm thinking about 
something that listeners will grasp onto immediately, which is the difference between your typical suburban white family and your typical suburban black family. Or say, we can take it a step further, we can say immigrants, Vietnamese immigrants, Indian immigrants, let's say Indian, for example. Comedians often really flourish if they come from one of these ethnic backgrounds because there's this much culture that they can draw from. And the culture leads to stereotypes, which leads to jokes. They can, you know, they can, a black comedian can say something, make a joke about his mom spanking him and all the other black people in the audience get that. They know exactly what he's talking about. But it seems like when it comes to particularly, not to pick on white people, but suburban white people in this case, it's a little bit harder to find those cultural points of similarity from which humor can arise. And is what I'm saying making sense here? This it is making sense. And I think I can, can bring it into a focus with uh, this analogy. It, it seems to me that you look at the last, say, 70 years, which is really the, the rise of super mass communications, super corporatism, super consumerism. One of the key messages was, you know, you can see it in McDonald's and and certainly Coca-Cola ad campaigns. It's all about the individual, you know, it's do your own thing. It's be an individual. And that was one of the jokes of the 60s where it really came into focus. You know, everyone's shouting, be an individual, you know, and and suddenly you had a crowd. Now they shout, now they all shout, be kind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, now we have uh, pride and collective identity. And really, it's the same coin. You know, it's it's the same cat, different whiskers. There was a teacher, I think, in England who was uh, called other students despicable when they took issue with a fellow student who identified as a cat. I loved it. It's like, Okay, right. Well, we now know that anything is is acceptable. And that's where we end up getting to. That's the problem is that culture dissolves into a mush, into a swamp full of abandoned shopping carts and, you know, COVID mm-hmm. masks and all if I met things. If I met somebody who I got close to and... They said, you know what I do at night? I make a big bonfire. I talk to the spirits of my ancestor and I become wolf for a few hours. Sometimes there are some mushrooms involved, but I become wolf. I'm like, oh, you like become a wolf? And they say, no, I become wolf. I would be like, this guy is awesome. This is cool. Meanwhile, if a kid's like, I'm a cat and you have to respect that and you have to refer to me as a cat all the time, (laughs) be like, okay, you need to go to the hospital. You might be getting sick. I I, look, I, I get that so completely. And I think you ran down that scenario so beautifully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the difference. And It's a level of ritual detail, commitment, 
commitment is such a lovely idea when you you know anyone who's really committed to something you just think you, you take them a little bit more seriously than someone who's not that's as, that's yeah. as simple as that their life sounds cooler after they die you know Ooh, that's a nice after, one. yeah after they pass away it be, people who are committed have have nice posthumous stories that people can tell each other because you don't have to say well for about 10 years he worked uh he was doing sales calls and then uh, after that you know he maybe he took a trip to france he liked that he says no this guy was committed to carving faces into <laughs> the the trees yeah. around his around his neighborhood everybody knew him as the tree guy bizarre dude but really cool it's interesting that, you know, we have that phrase, you know, the other meaning of, of committed is, you know, to be committed. Hey, know, there we go. Yeah. In terms nice. of an insane asylum, which, of course, the irony is we don't have really any more of those. No. All of and them it shows. Opened. It yeah, shows. that's it. It does. <laughs> and it shows, dude. It really shows. Let's get into the show. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. That was brilliant. The piece that you wrote there. Uh do you have a band for us today? I do. And uh, this came out of, of, of it's called the UUs. Uh, there is a, a mountain, a mysterious mountain, uh, not big mountains in, in Victoria called the Yuyangs, which is an Australian indigenous uh, name. So that might have been, and that was adopted by a band. I might have been thinking of that but the UUs and their album is called don't take the disease personally. And uh, they have a single called, I want you to want to talk about me, but Mm. here's the kicker. Okay. At at the start and on the surface, this is back to my snarky sort of uh, deconstructionist band approach with a difference. They start off as a shrewd but brutally cynical East Village gay techno fetish band, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pretending to be a teenage girl diary style bubblegum act. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is ironic. And then they deepen their understanding and connection with bubblegum music from its beginnings in the 60s through however it's changed, whatever we mean by that or might mean by it, they start to really deepen their understanding and love of the craft. And they become proud. They become proud bubblegum musicians. So the UUs don't take the disease personally. And their first single is, I want you to want to talk about me. I like that a lot. I like this idea of irony transforming into sincerity and people. Yeah, isn't that what? That never happened. Dude, dude it's, a, it's a fake it till you make it thing. I used to tell people that I had a friend, his name was Kennedy. And he was a short kid, really bad home life. And we'd kick him around. You know, he was kind of the punching bag for a while. And Kennedy at one point started affecting the attitude of, you know, a gangster. He started acting tough. And we all thought it was hilarious because it's this short little kid. He became a very frightening human being over time. (laughs) (laughs) Because if if you engage, this is what people who 
love irony and practice it all the time. They don't realize that eventually whatever you're being ironic about, you, you run the risk of sincerely starting to believe those things, including, but not limited to Holocaust denial. You, you know, so you got to be careful. You got to yeah. be careful with that kind of stuff. I'm not saying don't make jokes. I'm just saying that there's, there is something to that. If you there look absolutely is there absolutely if you, is. If you don't wear your psychic condom, you can, you can catch some, some diseases. Um, <laughs> all right. So your aphorism for the day. Okay. Okay. Uh, I've got two because I've, I've just, one just, uh, appeared, but this was the first one. Some things are so essential. They don't have to be important. Mm -hmm. And I somehow think that that resonates with your comments about meditation and a not formal, but nevertheless personal approach to that. I think the, the, the word important is a really uh, dangerous word. I think it stumps a lot of investigation, inquiry, and just fun enjoyment. Um, and significant might be the same in the same boat, but some things are so essential, they don't have to be important. And here's another one, which I think is really, uh, this is going to tie into some other writing that I'm doing, because I think it's a real, it, it's a very simple insight, but I think it's, it's got a lot of uh, bone density. Abbreviations lead to confusion. Inevitably, they are the root essence of all human conceptual confusion. Confusion equals an arithmetic of abbreviations. Hundred mm percent. -hmm. I was thinking about this. I was. I was thinking about this today. I can't give the exact specifics of what I was thinking about because it, it's a it's a friend who's going through a very private crisis. But I was thinking about the way that this particular crisis was being received by people around them, and I realized that having discussions with people. We're, we're talking across from each other, you know, our words aren't, aren't hitting. And it's because of the amount of abbreviations, the arithmetic of, abbrevi of abbreviations that we're spewing at each other and not being able to find common ground. So that, that resonates for me today, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad because I think it's a variation on Gilbert Ryle's notion of category mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of good stuff done on that. And it, it it touches with other people that we've looked at in terms of George Lakoff and Gregory Bateson and uh, well, a whole bunch of it, Benjamin Worf, a lot of interesting people. But I haven't heard the focus on abbreviations uh, or and also you could you could uh, substitute or include in that contractions, contractions. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You start to, and this gets back to to the also the, the discussion we were having last of about structure. Yeah. I mean, you start to abstract structure, and you get something very very weird. You know, the world starts to decompose around you, and you get lost in abstract systems, and nothing has any physical immediacy or genuine meaning as a result. You're so distanced, you know, the prepositional distance that we talk about. 
So, all all right. right. Are you ready for your imaginative challenge? I'm ready. Hit me. Okay. I'm going to give you two very different options. Two very, very different options, just because I'm feeling in the mood. Your first choice is you could uh, have an insight that would put you in the category of important intellects in history. Do you know the Doppler effect in physics? Mm-hmm. You, you, mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I, I just think that's a beautiful, clear insight, and it is named after uh, the person who had the insight and sort of really brought it forth as, as a physical, mathematical, descriptive, explanatory tool, you can decide to have that kind of an insight, but in the social, psychological realm, okay? So it's being used here as an analogy. So we'd like to hear what that would look like. What would the Doppler effect, that kind of insight or human knowledge innovation what would that look like in social psychological terms this can be the osborne effect if you like mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you can understand something that that people will go oh look i've wondered about that oh i i yeah i have noticed it but i've never thought of it that clearly and oh okay and he's brought that into focus and also given me some kind of tools that i can apply to other situations it's mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. metaphoric Okay. Your other choice is you can be a storyteller and you can deal with this premise. You or your first person narrator uh, is in a car accident and as a result of that finds that a strange new power like unto seeing auras has emerged, but it's much more visceral. Anyone anyone that this individual encounters who is in any way ethically sus, morally corrupt, appears with some degree of physical deformity so that it's possible to be wandering around just a normal suburban shopping mall and to literally see some monsters And then the question is, what does this individual do with this newfound ability, which is maybe blessing, but certainly quite a bit of curse? So you've got two very different choices there. Is that clear? Are your choices clear? Yes. And they're both very good. That's that will be part of the imaginative challenge. We'll be deciding which one. Yeah, I I end up going with. Yeah. I thought those were because like you're you are working with both those desires and goals and journeys and hopes. So I thought, yeah, I'll give you a really good crossroads starting point to have Mm -hmm. to choose. Awesome. Okay. As listeners know, we've been doing our opening segment and then I've been reading the notes that Chris sends to me via text, which I now know that he types on his computer not on his phone. (laughs) 
I want to take this one step at a time because you say some very interesting things in here and I don't want to lose anything. I'm afraid that when I read the whole thing at once, um, we might lose something here. So I'll read your first paragraph and we'll go through that. And honestly, I'm a huge fan of the second paragraph. So I want to make sure we get to that. But if we don't, we're definitely coming back to it, no matter what the notes are next time. Because okay. The second, okay. the second one is too okay. cool. But I feel like they should go in order here. Notes, exclamation point. Homeless tent versus Seattle mansion. Very small houses versus Native American wigwams. Structure, structures, evidence, evident. Does architecture tell the truth, a truth? Or is the entire point of architecture construction, projection, fantasy, however seemingly pragmatic and limited by function and finance? Is there an essential deep relationship between architecture and photography in this regard? Is photography, like architecture, always a construction and therefore never realistic? Interesting. Very, very interesting. Let me tell you what I think. So I think... I think you could probably split this out based on necessity and economics. I think that once you get to a certain level of money, I do believe that architecture becomes a construct in the sense that it is fantasy. It's projection. It's infinity pools, right? Uh I would say the Seattle tent cities, things that spring up out of necessity, I almost said organically, but I don't know if I quite like that word. They spring up out of necessity. Those, to me, project reality. And it reminds me, you know I'm a big fan of cyberpunk. You had that great line in your piece about, we become ghosts in the machines who work with ghosts in machines, or ghostly machines, so that we don't have to work. I really like that line. I'm going to remember that one. Uh, but Ghost in the Shell is a really popular anime film. And yeah. the cyberpunk the cyberpunk aesthetic is one of uh, this sort of decay, the mixture of high and low, technology and grime. <clears throat> and reading this paragraph made a light bulb go off over my head about why I might like those things. Because things like grime and decay, shantytowns, um, Structures built out of necessity. I think of a tour I went on in South Korea in Seoul, <clears throat> and we we walked out on the roof of this really beautifully designed uh, uh, tenement building, and we looked out over the shanty towns of Seoul. And I just thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Mm. Might not be great to live in there. I'm sure the insulation's not great, but it was beautiful in a way that lacked the artifice of the building that we were standing on. So what do you think about that as a tool for distinction between those two things? I, I think that's a fascinating one. Uh, and really, you you could open up a really, really rich, well, university-style course on, on that notion. Um, because artifice is, is a word I think we lose, strangely enough, in, in the word artificial. Uh, we lose it philosophically i think we lose it in practical terms but that oscillating tension between 
some you didn't mention the word aesthetics, but that's there. And then all of the pragmatic considerations and that reality is somewhere between that. And it's kind of this vibrating sort of tension, which in a way it makes me think of a skyline, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm trying to think of, I mean, I, I then had in my mind just flashing back to, you know, the tent cities in Seattle or San Francisco or Portland or or LA, you know, the ones that we're seeing now. To me, they just seem just completely squalid. And in part, I think that's just because the materials are, uh, well, they're cast off tents, you know, and they, they and some tarps and sleeping bags and things like that. Tarps. Yeah. I think tarp yeah. is the key element. I think that's yeah. the key visual take at. They're often dirty tarps. And I don't actually know when I when I think about that. I mean, what if we were given a challenge to get, you know, 20 of our, you know, people together to create a little tent city of our own? How good mm-hmm. looking could it actually be? You with know? tarps, yeah, you know, <laughs> be tough. I mean, it, be tough with tarps, yeah. That would be, you know, take the same <laughs> materials, and you know, uh, I think that is sort of a, a weird challenge. Um, and then you got me thinking of shanty towns I've seen around the world, and there really is an enormous variation. Um, but I think the distinguishing characteristic would always be the. Uh, the core materials, the, the the number, you know, there's usually one principle, whether it's cardboard boxes or discarded wood, um, tarps, you know, there's always some, or adobe, you know, are people making, you know, something like that. So there's something uh, going on there. But I liked that idea of the... How did you phrase it in terms of artifice? Was it the resistance to artifice? In terms of the shanty towns? Yeah. Necessity. Necessity. Was, yeah. Yeah. It was out of ne- the the um artifice is uh artifice is able to arrive. I brought up infinity pools and how once you get a certain amount of money, you can begin to inject a certain amount of artifice and uh, sometimes that artifice, by the way, is very interesting in terms of architecture. I'm not saying that it's not good looking, but extraneousness. Uh, I'm thinking of the difference between, say, <clears throat> uh, that in Praise of Shadows book where he talks about uh-huh. the beauty, the beauty of the monastery's toilets. I've enjoyed that book, by the way. I keep dipping in and out of it. It's good. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one for that. It's a good one for that. But the the simplistic beauty of uh, you know the the toilets or the uh, Suzuki's uh, issue with trying to find out how to get a modern stove into his Japanese dwelling, right? The injection of this artifice that might not always fit. I might be muddying the waters rather than clarifying them. I I'm not sure I'm going to buy into. Uh the premise that resources and say money or, you know, just budget or just capability 
creates more opportunities for artifice without wondering about the relationship between artifice then and necessity. Hmm. Because I think that you can look at many cultures around the world where not only in terms of dwellings, but, but certainly in terms of materials like baskets or pottery or you know the making of weapons and musical instruments, you see an awful lot more than necessity at work. You mm-hmm. see really aesthetics and kind of, I mean, you could say it's extraneous design, um, mm-hmm. but I don't think that really covers it because, you know, it, it it's hard to explain that by then, you know, the measure of affluence or prosperity, you mm-hmm. know? Well, how about this? How about, because I think that adding flourish or embellishment in my mind, doesn't equate to a kind of artifice. So a building that has a quality of artifice is attempting to convey an image, right? It's stepping away from reality and attempting to create its own. It's a more of an imposition of an idea through architecture. Whereas perhaps what you're talking about with you know, arrowheads or masks or things of that nature, or even even their dwellings. Uh, what were those really cool structures that you showed me a couple months ago from Papua New Guinea with that uh, alarming sort of front piece that comes out? Yeah, the house Tamaran, the spirit. Tamaran, yes, yeah, the, the spirit river. houses. Right, Secret right, right. River. Yeah, right. So, if that is designed with spiritual principles in mind perhaps that comes from an from an inner place rather than an outward in do you see what i'm oh absolutely and i think that that i think that the important point is that that wherever you see embellishment or uh that kind of devotion to the making of anything beyond functional necessity historically it's been about some sort of of religious or spiritual or magical direction. And it, that is seen as a necessity, you know? I mean, the, Plato said it, no victory without the gods, you know? Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. Plato saying that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that that the the level of, of spiritual and magical uh, infusion is is seen as a vital necessity mm-hmm. and where you don't see it i think that's what's that's what's interesting that's kind of where squalor begins i think you know it's not just necessity it's a loss of the essential nature of magic oh so there could be squalor in Beverly Hills. Basically. Oh yes, I think yeah, that I think yeah. it's I think it's beautifully squalid. Yeah, beautifully I, I squalid, terrifically <laughs> so. Anyone yeah. who has ever been to the polo lounge of the Beverly Hills Hotel knows what squalid really is. I have been. 
I have rarely been as uncomfortable as I've been there. Rarely. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, let's move on to the second one. This one's really good. The effect of photography was so powerful, painting had to abandon subjects and so created a new notion of subject, capital S. Speculation. The American road trip landscape lags behind the, the levels of psychosocial technological evolution at the same strange rate as the general populace struggles to deal with abstraction. I'm going to stop right there. Please riff on that for me. Because okay, I was okay. I was really hype on that on that sentence. I want to hear you talk about that more. Okay. Uh, well, I think the first part about photography's influence on painting is pretty clear. But the the mm -hmm. speculation about the American road trip thing obviously comes fresh off my big expedition uh, up the road to Seattle through a lot of different terrain, uh, social and and geological as well, but. It, it strikes me that there is so much of the American uh, road trip landscape that is still very recognizable in 1970s terms. You know, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel uh, alien and lost. It, there's a, there are dystopian elements. I mean, I notice now that it's very difficult to photograph uh, freight trains that aren't covered in graffiti, you know, that's mm -hmm. a very, I think that, I mean, that's not surprising when you think of Metro landscapes and, and subway cars and stuff, but it's, it's odd to see the graffiti on the move out in a badlands, you know, environment. Um, so there are some shifts, but driving around and, and looking at things, photographing things, accepting reality at that structural apparent level. It seems to me that, that the American mood, the newest sphere, as de Chardin would, would say, has not really, in that sense, caught up with a lot of the issues that are put forward in the mainstream media today and social media terms. Uh, I feel there's a huge, there's a bigger and bigger disjunction between what America is at street and highway level and what a lot of news and, and TV shows and entertainments and corporate, you know, uh, corporations are, are talking about. Um, a lot of the hot button social issues of our time, for instance, I just don't think those are at... Um, Outside the cities, I don't think they're 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 burning their way through, um, or I think oftentimes they're just simply handled much more gracefully without uh, a lot of the hoo ha that uh, the media needs to beat up, you know, to create more interest in everything. Um, so that's part of what. But I think that my contention here is that the distance between the American landscape and the American mediascape, let's say, the distance there is akin to the distance between average citizens' ability to deal with increasing abstraction of social system 
techno protocols, a removal from physical life, a removal from the body. You know, we've talked in, the, we've had shows devoted to the disembodiment of our culture. Um, in, and it's no surprise that AI is now increasingly the hot topic in the media. You know, we're, okay, so we're getting this very strange movement out of the body into machines of greater and greater complexity. And meanwhile, a lot of America is, you know, shopping at Walmart and uh, looking at gas prices and more, you know, really at the meat and metal level of life and confused about this increasing sort of levels of abstraction. So what does that confusion lead to? Hunger, ravenous hunger for subject, for physicality, for connection. And we don't know where to look. So we go to sports bars to see what manly men look like playing, mm -hmm. you know, children's games. Uh, I mean, you don't see those, those kind of guys walking around. Mm -hmm. um, you see a lot of dumpy looking people looking at artificially constructed people who are so hot, you know, everyone's hot except people normally walking around and they're going, Oh, I'm not hot. Oh no. What do I do? Well, I'm going to watch someone who is hot, you know, and maybe I'll watch them having sex or fighting or playing sports or something, you know, but it, it's this, it's just getting weirder and weirder and weirder. And I don't think it it, it needs to exist at all. I think it's a, just pure mental illness. The pure mental illness of wanting to not even live vicariously, but to simply observe other people living in ways that you find ideal. Yeah. That's okay. it. That's yeah. it. I think that's the essence of, of the mental. I mean, if that is the baseline for sanity today in society, then it's inevitable that there will be a massive mental health crisis at the, at, as, as things, you know, worsen within, you know, become more extreme. If that's the baseline of normal, which it mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. yeah, What's well, really interesting about what you said about like people saying, well, I'm not hot. So I'm going to, you know, when I'm scrolling through Instagram, I mostly see videos of people doing cool skateboarding tricks and wild animals. I saw a very cool video of a bald eagle dragging a huge trout through the water. The, a guy thought that the bald eagle was injured because of the way it was swimming, but it was actually, the fish was too big. So it was dragging it to land. But occasionally I will see an Instagram strumpet and it doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't do anything for me at all. I, I don't, I understand what it's supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? The proportions, the, the, the golden ratios and the sizes, but I don't know. It just, it doesn't move the dial for me at all, but that's neither here nor there. Well, no, I think it is. It, it, it is. It's both here and unfortunately there, wherever that. Unfortunately, is. <laughs> yeah, it's all. It's it's in a lot of theirs. I mean, I didn't include in the notes, but I think that that what you what you've just alluded to is is another aspect of the mental health crisis of our time. And I'm not saying it's it's anything other than one 
aspect of many. Sure. But I think that the teasing, the sexual teasing of, of men uh, via the media has gotten completely out of hand. Yeah. And men are completely complicit in that. I'm not excusing anyone from it. But I think it, it, it's just out of control. And cognitive dissonance between what you're supposed to be turned on by and how many times. And, so and right. I, I mean, I just, and I'm a, I, I put my hand up. I mean, I'm just, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just resonating to that all the time to the point where it just, I, I have to meditate to calm that just that one aspect of my mm-hmm. life. And, you know, I thought that might be over at my age, but no, it's absolutely mm-hmm. not. And I think that it is, uh, is it's ruthlessly inflicted for uh, commercial reasons. And I think it's not uh, philosophically and it's not medically or psychologically understood or appreciated just how completely crazy men can be driven and and then we turn around and go well all the crazy go you know it's all men doing all the shooting and all the anger and all the well yeah there is there are some reasons for that (laughs) it's about as i am so glad you said that because you just put that about as clearly as i've ever heard it put which is to simply say well yeah of of course they are. <laughs> yeah. Open up Instagram and within if, if you're going into it with the frame that you just posed, you will understand instantly why that thing kind that why that thing happens. People too often frame that as a gun argument. You know, and yes. the gun is the tool by which the action is is enacted. But the gun is not what causes it. Nobody looks at a gun and says, man, I want to use that to shoot as many people as I possibly can. Nobody's ever thought that before. The thought of shooting a bunch of people comes first. And where does that come from? Well. Bubbles and layers and crustiness of anger and resentment and confusion and dysfunctional navigation constantly imposed by a world and one crucial aspect of that is the insane sexualization of women at the exact same point where we are offering a very loud and shame-driven message in direct conflict yeah absolutely double bind that gregory bateson has put forward that's the crucial element. Wherever you you have a double bind program, you have inevitable, inevitable psychological distress. Mm-hmm. And because sex is so important, because gender is so important, all the that that's going to put extra pressure on them. But it really is the double bind issue, not just the subject matter here of, of sexual mm-hmm. sexualization. Right, right, exactly. This is Chris again. We yearn for subject, not realizing that photography, film, and video have distanced us from subject by an algebraic curtain of invisible coding. 
We seek ever more explicit and overt subjects, for example, the porn aesthetic, via the very means that veils. Deny the veil, enjoy the view. How sterile the idea of view suddenly looks. How at odds with perspective. Deny the veil, enjoy the view. That's a cool name for an album, too. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> you liked that. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, I, I think it has, uh, beyond the musicality, it does have so, some real meaning that what we're doing is is really uh, trying to resolve the double bind via more double binds, you know, mm-hmm. and the biggest one is we are looking for fulfillment uh, at a deep psychological level all the way up to social status level uh, via technology in the form of media and the media is inherently about distancing us from reality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know not good not good by extension any photographic evidence is by definition tampered with and aren't the airbrush photoshop and deep fakes just a return to the original stage magic stage magic nature of photography illusion entertainment not some truth could it be that the only objective reality is that which can't be documented that is very interesting so in that respect i know putting positive and negative distinctions on things can be a bit limiting so is that to suggest that airbrushing and photoshop has its benefits in terms of drawing out the artifice that we've been talking about of making it what it really is underneath it all? I think if it's appreciated as such, and I think you could see by analogy that that entertainment forms such as burlesque or cabaret or, you know, aspects of the carnival that are really quite upfront in their uh, down and dirtiness. Mm -hmm. um, There's something refreshing about them. It's when they have pretensions to that. I think that that's, you know, sometimes I I can, I worry about opera a little bit because it seems like high culture version of something that really was a lot more fun and more basic. And I think that, that where you see, I mean, think about um, Lisa uh, for a birthday present once gave me one of her father's uh, playboy collections which has uh, the Miles Davis interview. It's a very famous issue. It's worth quite a bit of money. But it's beautiful to look at, you know, that vintage of centerfold. Now, no one said that that was real and not heavily crafted. And, you know, some trucker sitting on a John on the outskirts of Milwaukee in a restroom just having a moment he wasn't thinking that that was real because mm-hmm. he, never, you know, that was the whole point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the terms of reference, the, the, the frames of artifice, if you like, mm-hmm. were understood and appreciated. And I think the problem has been is suddenly as, as photography has become virtually ubiquitous, We've lost reference to that. And now we're going, well, wait a minute. That's not what, what something looks like, you know? And uh, oh, 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 I'm sorry. I just, I just had a flash. You've done it again. You tr- 
I had one of those rare moments of overhearing a conversation the other night um, with all my ranting about sports bars. Uh, we have a really good one here and they serve a great uh, chili hot dog. The only time I ever, I just, I know it's nasty, but I, I went, and, but I was sitting there and there was a guy and gal late twenties, maybe, maybe early thirties, but not, they have more than 36 summers left. Let me put mm-hmm. it that way. <laughs> and I think this was a first date. And I can imagine the part, they're not from Boulder City. They're from Vegas. They were over to kind of have a little, you know, arty. Get away. Yeah. yeah. And the woman, the female, introduced the topic of pornography. And I think she was fishing for something yeah. from this guy. And right. I was waiting for him to really just roll over and just start lying or exaggerating. And and but she said something, she said, look, well, that's not what vaginas look like. You know, that typical argument, you know, that it's it's all artifice. And bless his heart. He leans forward on the stool and said, well, I've seen a few vaginas or actually vulvas. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, you know, that is what they look like. What does yours look like? Is it (laughs) different? (laughs) And it just, it, it absolutely just fried the whole thing. It was just so gorgeous. But anyway, what I think that the point is the question of, the degree of artifice and the intentionality of entertainment, engagement, something other than the representation of the truth. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, David, I'm going to give you, I'm not going to give you the truth. I'm going to give right. you the representation of the truth. I hope you right. could I hope that's useful to you, you know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Isn't that more useful to you than the truth? Here, have a representation of a representation of the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, and it starts mm-hmm. to get a little bit weird. You think, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. Yeah. What you're getting at is the underlying sense that a lot of people have right now that something's off. With art in particular. Yeah. With movies. Yeah. They can't quite put their finger on it. It's not that they care that the little mermaid is black. That's not quite it. No, it's not that they care that every time they watch a show, they start to notice that there's a very particular ratio of white people to people of color and how every show seems to include gay people, you know, all the inclusion stuff is totally fine. Again, we're David Lynch fans. The, The more varied the cast, the better because it's more entertaining to look at, but it's a feeling that we're being fed a representation of a representation of the truth. And that's not what we go to art for at our deep down. That's not what we're looking for at all. There's a show that's been getting panned by a lot of people I know who are of a certain type that you and I both know. Uh, The show is called the idol. It's on HBO or I'm sorry, max. It's now called max the stupidest brand change of all time. They had so much cultural capital with HBO. Yeah. The Sopranos, The Wire, 
six feet, like Deadwood, all these shows. We're going to be max now. Um, it's called The Idol. It stars Johnny Depp's daughter. And oh, right. I've heard about this. this. Yeah. And it's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's so good. I've been enjoying it so much because it's not giving you a representation of a representation of the truth. The whole first scene is Johnny Depp's daughter getting photographed because she's a, she's a pop star and her wanting to be naked and getting into a huge fight with the intimacy coordinator about how contractually she's not allowed to show her breasts because we, they want to make sure she's not pressured into anything. And she's sitting there like, I want to show them, let me show them. And they end up having to lock the intimacy coordinator in a bathroom and the the show is just very unwoke in that way, which is where I think a lot of the, um, the vitriol and the the snarky sniping at the show is coming from. Um, but when you watch something like that, you're like, okay, this might be a representation of the truth, but it's not a representation of a representation. You see what I'm saying? Like yes, there, there's some great great actors in it, and it just feels like when the publicist comes out and they're gay you think right of course yeah that that's the role for that guy that's per- nobody feels shoehorned in and i'm i'm very much looking forward to episode 2 of this show because it it feels like culturally this show and shows like the white lotus uh which is similarly uh unwoke in a lot of ways um it just feels like these creators kind of subtly saying like, Hey, does anybody else notice this thing that's going on right now? So I well, recommend it. I, I, think, I, I that's think that's a really great good. recommendation. Uh, who is the mother who uh, out of all Johnny Depp's uh, women? Who is uh, she was a model. Um, of course. His, his, yeah. Yeah. His daughter looks like him, just like a hot girl version of it. Let me see who, I have it seen is. a picture of her, and I think that that's a great recommendation. And I think that the the war against woke, uh, or the simple minded version of woke, which is so right. often, I think that's becoming what, what it is. I don't think we're. I don't think there is a subtle woke. Uh, it reminds me that one of uh, my really good students, uh, who is a black female. Uh, got a really good gig in LA as a market research analyst uh, showing, uh, you know, prospective commercials and entertainment products to African-American audiences to gauge to what extent they feel, look, is this just complete, you know, tokenism here, or is this actually working or, you know, so they, so that the wokeness, if you want to put it that way, is actually legitimate and, and, and effective. And, mm-hmm. and not intrusive and completely ideologically driven, you know. The mother's name is Vanessa Chantal Paradis. Paradis. I don't know. I'm in love with I, her name. I don't care. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool name. She's been in movies with Gerard Depardieu and Jean Reno, French actress slash model. Um, Used to be hot, of course. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, I think so for tonight. There is still a paragraph here, but I would like to to start wrapping this one up. Yeah, Uh, I think so. I think that uh, we have 
laugh. I mean, I, 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 um, I'm really happy with that because when I look at that paragraph that is remaining, I think that is a really good um, starting point for next episode. And it builds on everything that we've been saying. And it focuses us as at least at a, at a starting point to uh, what is arguably the most famous photograph of all time so far. Mm, cool. All right. That's where we'll start next time. So of the two choices for my imaginative challenge, before I get into, I pick number one. Hanging out. I, this is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I picked number one. Oh, uh, but I, yes. Okay. But I, I wanted to mention number two because it's really uh, coincidental that you, that, that your imaginative challenge was like this. So uh, Rios has gotten me watching the 2018 show Hannibal starring Mads Mikkelsen and Lawrence Fishburne based on the Hannibal Lecter books by Thomas Harris. And in the show, the last episode that we watched, the killer that the protagonist Will Graham is going after is a man who has a brain tumor and he can see people who are evil. It looks to him like their heads are on fire. Okay. And what he does, the way that he kills them, because the show is known for its gothic, artistic representations of these serial murders, he positions them in kneeling prayer positions and flays the skin on their back and pins it up like angel wings. So he turns the demons into angels. It's uh, gross, but cool, which is my review of the whole show so far. Um, So... In my first one, here's my thought process for the Osborne effect going off of the Doppler effect, which for listeners, I'm sure you all know, but it is the apparent change in uh, frequency of a wave, depending on how close or far away you are from it. So we've all, we've all heard the, like that's the, that's the Doppler. Sirens are a good example of it, but it works for sound and light waves. Yep. So for the Osborne effect socially. I went to the internet, I went to social media, and a thought popped into my head. I was talking to my brother the other day. Uh, He's a a sound engineer type guy. He knows a lot of stuff about how to make all that work. And something that he said to me was very interesting. He said, "There's there's an interesting effect that happens to people when they're listening to, say, a podcast, and it has to do with people's perception of loudness. And he said that loudness isn't necessarily volume. So a shotgun blast a few blocks away is perceived to you as being louder, quote unquote, than somebody whispering right in your ear. And that shouldn't make any sense because technically the whisper in your ear is louder. So the Osborne effect, the proximity of the observer to this social media and online milieu creates a an incorrect illusion of loudness of the ideas that are coming through. So your proximity to the black mirror increases the noise, essentially. That's what I got. I love that, David. I think that is exactly in line with the Doppler effect analogy as your starting point. So I hope listeners really to understand and work with analogy is is so vital a skill. And as a teacher, I've really gotten to see that work with students. And it's it's you know, we have much younger people, and, and you we take that for granted. 
And, and one of the things that when we meet people who are, that we identify as intelligent, is that they get that kind of congruity. So mm-hmm. I think that was a beautiful follow through, just the right sort of level of respect for what the Doppler, not more detail, not less. That was just mm-hmm. in line with that really nicely and gracefully analyzed. I, I really like the Osborne effect. I think that's a kind of idea that some people that we admire, you know, to say Douglas Rushkoff would be interested in Marshall McLuhan. It's that kind of thinking that I, that we really need at this uh, moment in, in time. Uh, I think that we're, we're socially media saturated and with AI on the rise, I think we've got to have some understandings of these. And that would be really, um, I think you'd find some, some people, you know, with the mathematical algorithmic trying to bring some precision to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think you'd find them really interested in, in that idea. I would love to see a visualization of that in, in kind of Venn diagrams or intersecting, you know, uh, yeah, it's intersectional, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, I'm thinking of, you know, le- like studying the brain and seeing what parts light up when somebody's on their phone, on social media, what danger areas, mm-hmm. you know, and then actually put, say, you know, an animal three rooms away from them, a bear. <laughs> if we have yeah. endless money and ethics aren't a problem, we put a bear in there and we say, hey, can you hear that bear snuffling around three rooms away? What's their perceived level of anxiety and potential danger, even though the threats are vastly like the bear three doors down is much more dangerous than whatever's going on in there. But it's this perception that's somehow off. And I think I'd, I would have to investigate this more. And in fact, I'll probably call my brother tomorrow and ask him why that happens, why the perception of the shotgun three blocks away is is louder, quote unquote, than the whisper in the ear. But that might be a useful analogy for why people take social media so seriously. We can figure out that that mechanism. I think so. And I think that it, it, it's an interesting uh, correlation with the, you know, the famous cocktail effect where, you know, even in the midst of a large, uh, loud room that someone can hear when their name is mentioned. This is, you know, supposed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Full name. It can't just be David, you know, but, you know, David Osborne. So, you know, that kind of thing. Suddenly you pick up on that. I think what it speaks to is the larger wilderness, unexplored wilderness of psychological filtering that, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the the greats tried to embark on. And we sort of, I mean, James did, uh, Freud, Jung. I mean, there's some, there was some great forays into that. And then we kind of, yeah. We just started thinking, well, we're speaking to people who are overweight or have drug addiction problems, and we're not going to get into all that interesting stuff. That's all too complicated. And no one's going to pay for it. You know, that's, that's a big architecture thing. Yeah. that no one was going to pay for. That's mm-hmm. really what it to. Mm-hmm. But I like that idea. And I think that there are, are uh, I, I really, um, I think, too, that the, the focus on a very clear analogy metaphor of the shotgun blast down the street as opposed to the whisper in the ear that's really workable that's really workable i i I encourage you to think more of that and i'm i'm sort of well i'm very pleased you went for that 
option, not the storytelling one, which had does have lots of references. You could have done a great job with that too. But I think the Osborne effect has taken on a level of reality now that could be examined and, and furthered. I think listeners could pick up on that too and just, you know, help us out, contribute. We want to build, you know, build ideas. It's the one that gave me the, the more fear out of the two. <laughs> so I went for that one. Yeah. Well, I, I, I looked at that. You. I looked at that one and said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come up with something for that, which is why I picked it. <laughs> yeah. That's always the right idea. People always yeah. go for the idea that is a little bit scarier, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Ooh, that's a little bit spicier, you know, yeah. just a little bit of push opens up many doors. What's the worst that can happen? I, I tell Chris that I didn't come up with something and he drives out to Oklahoma to kill me. That's <laughs> the odds of that aren't zero, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, but I think that was a beautiful response. I really do. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. Do you have a tool and a tip for us today? Yeah, I do. And I think the tool really fits in really nicely with this. Um, it, it could be summarized as saying never stop experimenting but when I wrote that down, I and I when I was thinking about it, I realized many people don't do much experimenting at all. Mm-hmm. I think that's really one of our great life problems. And what David just gave us was a performance of experimenting, as in taking a risk, as in doing something that was a little bit, you know, harder. Uh, but when we look at experimenting, this ties in with our our crystal radio idea of home or garage science. Uh, asking questions, investigating, trying to sort of learn things for ourselves and with our own hands. I think it's really important to think about what experiments are as artistic creations. We think of them as, as, you know, their science or the essence of the scientific method. Yes, they are. But to actually develop experiments that work that are that that produce some interesting results that are achievable that can be measured you know there's a real art form to that and it hit me when i was um i made myself a really cool smoothie and i poured it into the glass and i had a big hit of it i and i put the glass down cuz it was just really it was it was all happening i was really pleased with it and i watched as some of the the remnants slid down the glass. And that just seems so sensual. And I started thinking of beautiful naked women and music and artwork like Henri Matisse and all sorts of things. And then it occurred to me to ask, in a scientific sense, if the question were, how do you measure the speed of that that gravitational flow of the remnant smoothie down the side of the glass. How would I go about doing that? That's conceptually not out of my league. How would I, how would I do that? Uh, would I get a stopwatch out? Well, I'm, I need some sort of timing device. But how do I determine the flow of it? Because the nature of the flow is that what's on the top becomes the next level, becomes the next level, becomes the next level. So that when it finally eases back down into the half glass remaining, 
what what's really there because there's some remnants that are still on the glass mm-hmm. so you get to kind of a xeno paradox kind of thing well how much of the smooth you know and on and on and on and everything that we know or think we know culturally you know that we could emblematize if we were really the perfect cultural avatars has been learned through such painstaking observation and Mm -hmm. sometimes intentional, sometimes accidental. I mean, it is just staggering the, the, what we take for granted. The things we know about beetles, for example. Without, without ever having seen many beetles, you know, right. Mm -hmm. We think we know shit and we don't know anything and more importantly we have no appreciation for how things have become known so i really think that's important and when i started then thinking about well i'm gonna how do i use this tool never stop experimenting one of my big joys in coming home is i picked up my blow guns again because i didn't feel comfortable doing that uh, away even though i brought my main blow. so that's what was wrong with you <laughs> yeah, could you didn't be. have could didn't have your blowguns, man. You got to take and those with you next time. So I started out, and I thought, you know, I'm going to break with my old technique. I'm going to break entirely. I'm 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 going to loosen the seal on the mouth piece. I'm going to be a little bit more casual about that, and use be a bit more lip based and less breath di- diaphragmic. I'm also not going to be as fixed. I'm not going to worry about having my butt placed and my feet, you know, my balance. I'm going to be a little bit off balance. I'm going to think of it more as a hunting, you know, because that that's what it is when you when you do, you know, take bigger blowguns out and are hunting. So I experimented with mouth, peace, and movement. And I was really pleased with it. I... I got some interesting results, not always what I wanted, but sometimes very much so. I was able to stack three darts, which is pretty good, in the directly mm-hmm. in the bullseye. Uh, at, you know, 35 feet, that's not bad. Uh, but I, I really had a sense of enjoyment. I had a sense of flexibility and empowerment. And I think if we can take that on board, don't never stop experimenting which means start experimenting more and you will enjoy things more. You really will. I -hmm. guarantee it. Awesome. Here's my tip, which is sounds like an extension of this and sounds really, really, you know, not stupid, but, but very basic, but the tips are supposed to be basic. Step on a rubber band barefoot. It's very easily, there are certain things you don't want to step on, like a Lego block or all sorts of things. But a a rubber band is odd because depending on the the thickness of the skin of your feet, how sensitive, you know, how often you go barefoot, all those kinds of things, you'll get different sensations. But we so often forget our feet. That is, you know, we have that expression, get our feet underneath us. Well, yeah. And so many health concerns, you know, as people get older with diabetes or cardio issues, you know, feet become really important. Uh, In the jungle, 
you know, whether you're, you know, in, in combat terms or just exploring, one of the things that can really go wrong is your feet. Mm-hmm. I think we need to pay a lot more attention to our feet. And I've started to do that. I've started to look at my, my toenails a lot, you know, to keep those. Me really- too. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, and my, and my toes for that matter. I really enjoy the sensation, by the way, of putting a rubber band around my wrist, mm-hmm. stretching it and not snapping it, but letting it fall back gently and feeling the contraction of the rubber band, the way it pulls at the hairs on my forearm. Yeah. That's a cool, it's a cool feeling, you know, to, to put it on there and just stretch it and then let it go and feel that thing contract. I think it's worth having different, I've got different color rubber bands, but really different thicknesses to hand. Yeah. To. I think yeah. that's really, there's something just very satisfying about it. It doesn't need any explanation beyond that. But I think it is part of the, these weird, informal idiosyncratic meditation techniques that, that we started talking about. I like that idea, David. I think that's really, um, that's really cool. Absolutely. Nice. So you wanted to do something a little bit different for the dream segment this time. I did. I sent you some, uh, a piece of music that I, I I've actually done a music video to it too, but I haven't put it up on YouTube yet. So I wanted, if, if we thought this was cool, this will be a world premiere, but it's based on a dream that I, I had and I, I introduce it in that way. So I think that it uh, it's a little long, but this is something that the ensemble that I'm working with, uh, put together and we had some fun and I think it's a, a good variation on our uh, approaches to dreams. So we might send you out with that. All right, cool. Well, that is what we'll do. And I'm signing off from this end. Take care, everyone. See you next time. Right bye. I had a dream or some activists freed the Minotaur from the labyrinth. But locals hunted it down and thought they killed it. And they buried it, wounded but alive still, in a giant iron metronome. And I found myself, along with some shadowy compatriots, exhuming the monster and freeing it. Again, in the hopes that it could heal itself.